Welcome to episode 133 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Right, guys, so welcome along to episode 133 of Iron Man Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Isles. And it's just Bevan James Isles here at the moment. I'm um, it's Saturday morning and I'm about to go to Australia in about three hours from now. And I'm trying to get this show done before I go. Uh, John's not here today, but he is going to be here in a few minutes because we pre recorded a couple interviews. But before I go into that, Iron Man Talk is proudly brought to you by Coffees of Hawaii for all your coffee needs. Ethlinks.com um, for social networking for endurance athletes, and lastly, from trybuyers.com, the world supporter of the world's best Armen triathlon Crowy. So anyway, this week's show we've got two interviews. We did these a couple of weeks ago, and to be honest, today's show probably won't go for the full length of time, but we'll probably get about forty minutes out. The first is a guy called Jason Meadows, who. Um, some of you may know from the earlier days of triathlon and uh, he's, well, John talks quite highly of him and he's obviously quite a wise triathlete and you'll hear why in a few minutes. And then we have an interview with a guy called Rob Dallymore. Now Rob Dallymore is one of New Zealand's top podiatrists and he's going to give you some really good information on things that you guys should be thinking about when choosing your shoes and podiatry and injury prevention. So we're pretty much going to get straight into the show and uh, bring it on. Here it is. Let's do it. So on this week's show, we've got a guy that some of the old timers, oh, the old timers, the old timers will know about. But uh, unless you're based in in sort of the Middle East, you may not have heard of this guy. His name's uh, Jason Metters. He's going to be talking to us today a bit about the good old days in the '90s. And a couple of the reasons I wanted to get him on here was he raced with um, a lot of the guys that are really at the fore at the moment uh, in the early days. So the likes of Macker and Crowey and and obviously Lessing, he raced a lot with him as well, so keen to sort of hear a little bit about that as well as his own background, and he's also based in the Middle East, and we know we've got a few listeners out there, and, and we've had emails in from people saying they're maybe moving out there and they're not quite sure how to get into tries, so you might be able to sort of fill us in a little bit on the details over there, and uh, and in, in New Zealand, from, from sort of my era, Jason was known as one of the, the cherry-pick extraordinaires. <laughs> he, <laughs> He knew how to find the races with good money, and uh, he went and did them and, and certainly dominated a lot of them in the, in the 90s. So welcome along to the show, Jason. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Beautiful intro, mate. Yeah. So j- just tell us a bit about your background in terms of your racing, because um, you know, the Aussies probably know a bit about you and, and the likes of me who are sort of around in a similar era know a bit about you, but tell us a bit about your sort of racing career and, um, and how you sort of kicked into things in, in, in Australia and so on. Uh, well, you probably hit the nail on the head there as far as the cherry picker. I was pretty pretty known for that. Uh, I, I, I used to get around, I used to get to be races that, that nobody would go to. Um, in saying that, you know, I'd often bump into uh, into a brownie or a road view, a few of the guys that are still racing nowadays. Um, I, I started when I was pretty young. I started as a 16-year-old, which is 20 years ago now, believe it or not. Yeah. And... Um, and yeah, just got hooked like everybody else did. I, I came from a swimming background. I entered my first triathlon, got out of the water third, and ended up 852nd. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but, but but you know, got hooked, got hooked from there, and um, got well into it, and, and ended up making um, a couple of the junior teams for the world titles, and that's where I sort of 
discover drive zone, I guess, and, and, and bump into a lot of the guys that are still racing on the circuit today. So it, was, it was different in those early years. Obviously, when you came through the junior ranks and then you sort of stepped up into the senior ranks, triathlon was, was really going places in Australia, you know, in terms of the, the Tui series and then it changed to Uncle Toby's and, and what have you, whatever all the, the titled sponsors were at the time. But you know, how, how has things sort of changed from, from those days to, to what you're sort of seeing these days? I think it's changed a hell of a lot. Um... You know, back in the 90s, it was obviously much more... Yeah, it, was, it was a raw sport. It was just coming to its, uh, you know, forefront. I guess it was... In Australia, it, um, I, I would say it was much more popular in Australia back then than what it possibly is today. There was just a, a stack of more races that you could do um, just within New South Wales. I mean, every every weekend would be a triathlon or two, two on... Um, Unfortunately, today I, I think that sort of dropped off a little bit with, with you know, insurances and with uh, you know, police, uh, you know, have to, having to attend these events. I think a lot of a lot of those raw, old-fashioned sort of triathlons have, have faded out. Um, you know, when you talk about the Tui's Blue series, um, which later became the St George series, I, I was I was a part of that for the for the first five years that that was in, and I mean that really was. Uh, was big time racing. It was on live, you know, Channel 10 live television. It had the 25 of the best guys from from around, you know, the country and and, um, and a few from around the world. Uh, Cameron Brown, Hamish Carter were the Kiwi lads who would turn up. Um, you'd have Spencer Smith from UK. So I mean, those races were were um, were brilliant races as far as Australian audience was concerned. Your Brad Evans and your Greg Walshers were were sort of becoming household names. Um, and those series were running from, I guess the height was from '95 up to 2000. I think it uh, was 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 doing very well back home. And the Olympics killed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it just I think it just changed as far as uh, the kids out there now. I, I guess are, are heavily involved with their federations, and they're you know they're racing for points. These ITU races, they're trying to gather points to make the to make the Australian teams. Um, which I think is a little unfortunate because uh, I know he's an old timer now, I guess, but he's still on the circuit. Is uh, Greg Bennett, and I watched him race in uh, in New York uh, last month, and you know, 36 years of age, he's still up there with the big boys, and um, you know, he beat most of the guys that, that raced in Beijing. He beat them, but uh, he but he couldn't make the team. You know, he didn't do the selection policy to make the team, and I think that's where it's. Uh, where it's changed, uh, the guys back in the 90s were, were racing for the cash, um, you know, they'd turn up to a few selection races and, and, and go off to the world titles, but uh, nowadays, you know, you have to do a certain amount of, of events and, and there's a point system now that different federations implement. I think that changed it, uh, you know, quite a bit as far as what it was in the 90s to back to what it is today. Because it, it was pretty reasonable money over there in Australia, wasn't it? When the guys were racing on the the Uncle Toby's series and and Tui's Blue and so on, it was um, it wasn't too bad, was it? It was fantastic money. I mean, you know, back then we, uh, the Tui's Blue races, and we're talking um, yeah, fourteen years ago now, and those guys were racing for uh, I think it was about seven and a half, ten thousand dollars a win. We all got money right oh. down to the to the last person, twenty fifth, got got a few hundred bucks. Now. Yeah. Uh, I don't even back now. You don't you, back today. You, you sort of back home. You, you might see a few selection races that have a bit of prize money. We're talking, 
a few thousand bucks here, five thousand um, dollars. Yeah. So I think a, a, a lot of the big, a lot of the big dollars did go. Unfortunately, yeah. there is still obviously you've got these big uh, races in the states now, and Lifetime Fitness, and a few of these popular races that have got some some big paydays. But I do believe back in the nineties, um, a lot of guys could get on a plane and you know end up in Tahiti or New Caledonia or, or you know through Asia, Japan, and 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 pick up a, a decent living. Mm. So what, what, lay out a, a typical season for you back in those days. Were you spending pretty much doing a full Aussie season and then going over to Europe and doing a full season over there? Yeah, back back in those days, we we, we really did uh, we did some serious racing. I mean, Greg Walsh was obviously one of the stars back then, uh, and he was doing back to back seasons. I think he was probably the first guy who started going to the states and, and racing US season and then coming back over and um, and doing the Australian season. So. Us guys would do the Tui's Blue type series in Australia, uh, you know, pick up our speed, and then we'd all jump on planes by April, May. We'd end up, you know, in uh, races through the islands, Tahiti, New Caledonia, these events. We'd move up to Asia, and then um, for myself personally, I would end up in the French. I'd race in the French uh, seasons, which were, uh, which I still believe are, are, are great. Um, places for, for young kids to go up and do a season in France or two. I think it, it really does get you tough and there's still some very tough old-fashioned sort of racing in, in, in France. But, uh, you know, there, there was a good living to make in, in, in France and by the time you sort of did back-to-back seasons, you, you could do okay. So one, one of the things that I was always interested in is when you were in France, you were on the, the same team as Simon Lessing and a fairly large, well, a, a, probably one of the major objectives each season, I would imagine, was the, the French Iron Tour, which was basically doing you know, five to seven days of back-to-back triathlons, and Lessing pretty much ruled the roost there for quite a few years, and uh, he had a sort of his team there, which which you were part of, and what what was your sort of role there? Were you, were you a domestique, or were you basically just going out there to try and go as fast as you could every day? Um, with, with Lessing, I mean, I mean we nicknamed him the king, Benny Brighton, like Bomber House and myself, Nicknamed the King. I mean, I got to I got to race with Simon for a couple of seasons there in a, in a in a team called Assistan, which was a, a big team that came came around for about three years. There had some big funding, big sponsorship, and they signed up. Originally, it was myself and and Ben Bright and a couple of the French guys, and they ended up signing signing uh, Lessing up back in. Uh, in the mid nineties, I mean, you couldn't. You probably know, John. You couldn't get. You couldn't get close to Lessing. I mean, the guy was. And I still think today. Um, I, I sometimes I wish he retired five years ago. I, I, I hate seeing him on the circuit now, coming in fifth, six, and people really don't understand how good this guy was because he could rock up to any event, um, whether it was France, whether it was drafting, non-drafting, hilly, flat, and he would. He could tag a Craig Walton or a Hayden Woolley in a swim. He could he could outbike um, he could outbike those guys. And then back in those days, he'd run a thirty-one and a half, thirty-two. You couldn't go near the guy. Yeah, it was, it was he really was unbeatable there for yeah for for probably a, a three four year period. Uh, I, I don't think he was beat. Um, the person who probably came out and and and, and rolled him for the first time for real was uh, was probably Macker in the in the ninety-seven Worlds where he. You know where he, where he beat Simon. Yeah. As far as what as far as what I was doing back in there, um, I was sort of, you know, I, I guess I guess I I did do those cherry pick, picker races and, and wasn't wasn't that known on the circuit as far as the ITU stuff. But in France, I'd probably 
I did race quite well, and um, I knocked up a few a few decent results there, and, and um, you know got into that Assistant team with with Ben Bright and uh, and Lessing and a few of the French guys. And um, our role was always uh, the French Iron Tour. I don't know if you you guys remember the the, oh, yeah, the French Iron Tour, but it was eight days of racing, and uh, we you know we'd race, pack up, go to the next venue, sort of like what the Tour de France is doing. Um, what the Tour de France is, is what they were doing in triathlon. And um, and the whole objective for us in the season was, was to win that French Iron Tour, which we did three years on the row, in a row there. Now, Lessing was, uh, he was the man. I mean, he, he won the thing uh, four years in a row. I think Simon won overall. He couldn't go near him. And, and our job was, was basically to protect him. What I mean, what's uh, we, we've interviewed Simon um, on the show earlier this year, and it was a fantastic interview, and he certainly um, you know told yeah, us a lot of things. He's open air. What, what? How did you find him as a guy? I mean, a lot of people tend to say he was a bit arrogant, and uh, but that's maybe a, a South African thing. Do you find him to be a pretty, uh, pretty helpful, helpful fella, and, and pretty caring man? <laughs> caring. Yeah, I thought, I, Simon. Simon was ruthless. I mean, he he raced off. Uh, he raced off paranoia. He always thought everybody was uh, either going to beat him or, um, or out to get him. In, on, the, on the circuit, like, you know, before races and after races and even during a race, he'd be, he'd be very arrogant. I mean, if, you were, if you're, you know, if you're getting on top of him or something on the bike, whatever, he'd soon blast you up for some reason or, um, you know, he always found a way of getting in your head. He was, um, but I stayed with him a few times, him and Lisa down in the south of France and, you know, I thought he was a lovely guy. I think he, he was uh, definitely misinterpreted. You know, he, he was arrogant um, as far as a racer. But like any champion at that level, I think you've got to have some element of, of arrogance. And, um, you know, he was taken out of context a lot there. And um, But, I, yeah, outside, outside the racing and just hanging out with him in his home, he's a lovely guy. I mean, you go... What used to blow me away is you go into into his home and there wasn't a single bit of triathlon you just sit there it's just a a nice home with with a couple of pictures of his family and and what have you you go down into his garage and there in the corner covered in dust is like you know 95 world champion cancun 96 world champion it's like simon what are you like all these trophies man they just sit in the garage it's like yeah 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 so you know, that, I think that's he'd, he'd look. He'd come across as arrogant or a bit of a big head in that, but he certainly wasn't that. I mean, behind behind the scenes, he was a, he was a great guy, and he he'd never rub rub it in your face how good he was. Mm. Horrible guy to train with, but <laughs> why? Uh, I, I what? Well, when I first came down there, Brad Devon warned me. He said, "Oh, good luck, you know, training with Simon." And um, I used to hear these stories about when he'd go for his run, he'd just run out the door and, and go like 33 10K pace. He'd just go at 320s per K. So I thought it was a laugh. I'd, I'd turn up and we, we'd get out of the, um, we have breakfast, have some coffee and go for a run. The first kilometre, I'm absolutely at max. I'm like, Simon, what's go- is, this, is this it, mate? Is this what we're doing? He's like, oh, no, this is, this is how I run. Like oh shit, mate. So I mean, I was PBing. I, I was I was doing PBs in my training run with that thing. <laughs> so you get to the pool and it'd be the same deal. It was just hell for leather. You'd get on the bike in the afternoon. He'd do his 80k. So I'm thinking, all right, two and a half hour bike. 
you know, one hour fifty, one hour fifty-five. We're riding like forty-two k an hour, absolutely hammering. And and this is how Simon trained. He, he'd get up, he'd run his ass off for an hour. He'd have a, a rest, do a hard pool session, have a lie down, and then in the afternoon, in the evening, he'd bike, and um, it was just always full on. There was no wow. speed work, there was no intervals, there was no secret training, there was no secret coaching. The guy just went out and hammered every single day. Wow. That's <laughs> you, you also spent a lot of time. Oh, go. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Say what you're going to say. Oh, I was, just, I was just saying, yeah, just just training with the guy. I mean, I just, I, I really learnt what what hard training was. I mean, the guy just, he, he just went out there, and, and there was no heart rate monitors. There was no uh, special diets. He's just a very, very hard man, and he, he, um, you know, he got there and, and win these races, and everyone, everybody would think how easy he'd done it and how good he looked. And but uh, I can tell you now, behind closed doors, like Simon trained incredibly hard, and outside probably. Um, people that I've seen outside, probably your, 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 your Chris McCormack's or I guess your Craig Alexander's and that, um, nobody trained as hard as what Simon Lessing did. He was just incredible. So you, so you mentioned those boys, Emeka and Crowey. Uh, you know, you've been with them or you've known them for such a long time. Does the success that they're kind of experiencing now surprise you? And uh, have they changed much over the years in their approach to the sport from your perspective? Uh, when I first when I first saw Chris, it was back in in '92 at the running track, and um, this was when Chris was just just coming out of the the end of his running career, and uh, he was a a very very good cross country runner. Um, he was just starting to get into triathlon, so I I, I knew Chris back then. Uh, one of my old girlfriends was 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 best mates with Chris, so I go back a long way before he even started there, and um, I mean a gifted runner. He couldn't seem to save himself. He could, he could, he could bike. A, you know, he could bike okay, but he wasn't uh, wasn't a brilliant bike rider. But uh, you know, he just uh, he just started like that. I mean, he just started like all of us. He, he had he had a running background, but uh, swimming and biking he had to start from from absolutely nothing, basically. As far as as far as his success and that, um, it doesn't surprise me at all with with Chris for the fact that he was. Um, Always a very, very talented guy. Uh, back in the early days, he was renowned for his partying. One of the first times I saw Chris was actually it was probably about six months after sort of knowing him a little bit. There was an old mate of his, Sean Maroney, who was also I was also quite uh, good friends with. And I remember being with my girlfriend walking home after dinner, and there's McCormack and Maroney sitting in the park with a brown paper bag of port and a and a cheap bowl of wine. And I remember him like that. That he's a cocky little bastard, you know, telling me how he's going to beat me and blah 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 blah. And uh, yeah, so you know, one of the first memories of looking at Mac was sitting in the park with Maroney having a, having a bowl of port and wine. <laughs> I think things have changed too much. <laughs> and what, what about Crowy though? Because he, he took quite a while to sort of mature as an athlete. Because I, I spent a couple of seasons racing with him in France and. Did you sort of expect yeah. to see him go on to such, you know, such big things? Because you know, the last few years he really has been you know, dominating the dojo on the seventy point threes, and obviously his big, big race in Kona last year. Crowy's uh, Crowy's last couple of years, last two, three years have just been incredible. I mean, I, I still look at all the guys' results and keep in touch with with a few of the guys, and um, 
it, it did surprise me about two years ago about how well he was racing, um, in particular those half Ironmans and, and some of those Olympic distance races in the States. Crowey was... Um, Crowey came on the scene with us, with us guys back just when, when Chris won the world titles back in 97. And he, he just wanted to catch up and train with us. So he used to drive from Ashfield every day to Heathcote and Cronulla, which was a good 45-minute uh, drive. And he'd hang all day with, with Macca and myself. He'd, he'd go out, uh, we'd train in the morning hard. He'd, he'd hang at Chris's house and eat his, eat his fridge out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, train again in the afternoon and head back home. The thing with Crowey was, uh, out of out of all the guys that I've seen on the circuit, um, and you know, there's been quite a few guys that are still racing today, nobody is as, as tenacious as, as what Crowey is. Yeah. Like the guy would would never give up, and you probably know John from the old Malouz days yeah. in France, and that he just wouldn't give up. I mean, the guy just is uh, just a pit bull, and he hasn't got uh, I, I, as, as talented as he is. I don't think he's as talented as a as a Simon Lessing or a, or a Chris McCormack, yeah. but as far as being a very very hard man and and uh, and just not knowing how to quit, um, very very uh, very hard to go past Crowley. So as far as like you know his success today, I think if you look at um, back when the '91 World Titles, I, I often look back at the results there, and I can't believe the guys that are still out there today. Yeah. Norman Stadler raced in the '91 World. Um, Amos, Paul Amy, uh, Rhodey, Cameron Brown, Thomas Herrigal, all these guys are still, you know, still in the in the half Ironmans and Ironmans, still the big boys of today. So I think, uh, you know, back to your Crowe, he, he just never gave up. Yeah. He, he just, he never gave up. He just kept uh, plugging away, plugging away, you know, chasing Cormac's tail and, and, um, and he, yeah, he just he just didn't give up, and he just kept training harder and harder and harder. He, he's, uh, you know, he's, he he knows his body quite well. He's had some injuries, and he's he, you know he's also a physiotherapist, Crowy. So he sort of knows how to how to uh, look after his body, and um, I think it's really uh, it's really helped him. Yeah, uh, we always like to hear some good gossip on the, no, the current stories, eh? But obviously, yeah, um, you're, you're not not based in Australia at the moment. You're sort of based in uh, in Dubai there. Or Abu Dhabi, if I pronounce that correctly. Yep. Um, what, what's, yeah, Abu Dhabi. what's the deal there? Um, I, I, when I retired in 2003, I, I, um, I came up here and took the position to, to be the personal health advisor of, um, of one of the princes here, one of the president's kids, Sheikh Falah, his name is. And um, so I went from racing and, and came over here and started uh, started training the prince and. Uh, I mean, I started working with their with their UAE police triathlon team, which is, I guess, we call it their national their national team. And um, so that was it for a couple of years. I just I, I was just twenty four seven with with the Prince. I, I, I travelled the world with with the guy, and and we did um, some good training. You know, just looking after him, getting him in shape, keeping him keeping him healthy. Um, probably about two thousand. No, sort of. It sort of started off a little bit with triathlon, but we didn't go too far with it. You know, in fact, we never got to a race. <laughs> you know, we just, we just, I just took some weight off him and, and kept him healthy. Um, you know, to this day, we're still very close, and um, he's looked after me and my family very well. So, you know, I still still keep him keep him in shape a little bit from time to time. About three years ago, I started. Uh, I had a few guys that 
that uh, in the expat scene here that wanted me to to start coaching them. So I formed my Trot or Spire uh, triathlon team, and um, you know, for me, it's the passion. I I, I I love the sport that much. I didn't want to let it go. So it was it was uh, it was just keeping me insane or keeping me sane. Sorry, up here in, up here in the desert. So you know, so yeah, the triathlon team. Um, has kept building. It's, I've got my VIP service, which is which is more health consulting with um, with a few people in the region, like Saudi Arabia and Egypt and um, Kuwait and, and and the areas of the, the countries around around the Gulf. I've got a few VIP clients and ministers and that that I work with. Uh, nothing to do with triathlon, just to keep keep them in shape. Yeah. But the triathlon team has uh, has really built up now. We've got about forty fifty guys in the team. Uh, a couple of Kiwi guys are there. Uh, Chris Smith and Chris Kerr are in the are in the team, and and actually Chris has just gone back. To, uh, he's he's just been appointed the GM of Phillips now, so he's gone back to back to, back down to you guys. But the, yeah, so the team's got we've got a stack. We've got a lot of uh, a few Kiwis. We've got a stack of South Africans and and, and Brits, and um, basically people who are coming up here. Um, there's a gold rush on up here. You know, everybody's coming up to up to the Emirates to, to, to make their money, and um, and there's quite a few people who have interest in triathlon. What's some um, so, uh, what's some things that you would um, consider to, <clears throat> for people who are thinking about going up there when it comes to training and racing there? Um, get used to the heat. I'd say that's the first the first thing. I mean, our summers are like um, you know 45 between 45 and 50 degrees is, is, a, is a typical nice. day. You won't see you won't see a cloud for six months. Incredibly uh, brutal the conditions. So, I mean, people who do to come up here, you do have to get used to the weather. Um, but it's funny, you know, when you when you do get here, believe it or not, you, you end up getting used to the weather. And um, you know, we, we do go out in the, in the mornings and train when it's you know even before the sun comes up, it can be thirty five degrees and and ninety percent humidity. So yeah, we're, we're dripping in sweat, but um, you, you do acclimatise to to the place, to the weather. You do get used to it. Obviously, it's not like home. Uh, you know, as far as the training is in the desert, it's it is tough training. Um, but there's a bit of a network now in the tri scene. It's where there used to be 50 people doing a triathlon uh, only you know three four years ago. Now you've got um, a couple of hundred doing it. So some of the local races have got 250. Odd people doing the events. Um, I've got a couple of mountain races in the middle of the desert that um, are becoming quite popular. Where it's, you know, basically it's a it's a 400 uh, meter mountain, which is which is pretty unique in the desert. You know, you, you drive along there and you've got nothing there, and all of a sudden you come across this, uh, you know, <laughs> this huge mountain. Uh, I guess you guys all know of, of your Faris Al Sultans. I mean, Faris Faris has been here forever. He's, yeah. he's been in the desert. His father uh, is an Iraqi, and um, and he used to live in our land, which is about 150k into the desert from Dubai. And uh, so Faris Faris Sultan has been here for forever, and I think I think it really helped him with his uh, with his Kona win. He shocked a lot of people there, but um, he didn't really shock me for the fact that I've I've been here. Uh, you know, I've been here since 2000 2003, and I used to see this kid training in the desert on his own. Just doing some ridiculous uh, training sessions in the heat, you know. Yeah. What? What are? I mean, are there any cultural considerations people have to have when they go to go the training or racing in the Middle East? 
Uh, no, not really. I mean, I probably think five years ago, uh, running along Abu Dhabi, you'd have to be a little careful uh, not to disrespect anybody. Like, for, for the girls, you know, it wasn't the dumb thing to go out running in a pair of running shorts and a singlet. But five years on, Dubai's really, really opened up. Abu Dhabi's opening up. And um, it's very multicultural now. So for people to... Um, uh, you can see girls now running along along the beaches in a in a you know in a in a short pair of shorts and a singlet and there's absolutely no issues whatsoever. Saudi Arabia, these places are certainly different. Um, you, you certainly wouldn't go around Saudi Arabia in a in a in a pair of shorts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, even for a guy, even for a guy, you wouldn't do that. Really. Holy moly, that must no, be no, no. toasty training. Yeah, I reckon. You've got your trekkies on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, obviously, yeah, we'll, we'll have a link through to your website on um, on ironmantalk.com next week. Um, so if anybody does want to find out more information on racing around there, are there any other sort of good web resources if people are sort of in the Middle East area where, where they might be able to find out more information? Obviously, your own, but any other good ones? Um, you've got... Uh, in the Emirates, I guess this is where the, the hub of the triathlon is. Bahrain and these countries haven't got much going, but um, you've got my site. You've got uh, there's the Dubai Tri Club, which has got some information also um, on the tri scene here. But uh, like I said, John, it's, it's, it's quite a small scene. It's uh, it's not too everybody knows everybody up here, so it's not too hard to, to gather information. Um, just Google search and triathlon in Dubai, triathlon Upper W. It'll link you to. Um, you know, to my site and, and, and a few other sites here that can give you a little bit of information on the um, on the tri scene here and the training and, and, and a few of the local events within the region. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. And if we are up your way, we'll uh, we'll pop in and yeah, do a bit plan of, to go next week. Yeah. <laughs> do a bit of heat climate. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thanks for your time, mate. It's great hearing those old stories, eh? Yeah. Back in the day. In the no day. problem, guys. Cool. Thank cool. you. Now we're going to check on the second interview with Rob Dallymore. So a couple of weeks ago we had on the show giving his uh, Kona predictions, Rob Dallymore. Oh, it seemed like so long ago. It seemed like so long ago, <laughs> but yeah, it was only 20 seconds ago. Uh, and as I said then, he's based up in Auckland at Foot Traffic. He's a qualified podiatrist, and often we like to get guys on the show that have obviously got the... The cred. The accreditation, but also they've got the... Um, Experience. experience of yeah. racing and training so they can give you you know um, the textbook side of things plus actual race experiences so welcome back to the show Rob thank you <laughs> been a long time you're welcome to, yeah, it is this is always like this so um, give it, basically obviously you're a podiatrist what are some of the more sort of common issues you see triathletes coming in to see you about um, obviously at your store and, and with your podiatry experience you know the most common injuries that come up it's uh, it's funny it's it's really seasonal actually and um, we're getting close to the um, sort of marathon Auckland marathon season and yeah. being based up in Auckland we get a lot of guys who are um, training for the marathon and they're coming up with a lot of um, overuse typical overuse injuries for guys who are doing a lot of long slow miles yeah. and um, so we're seeing lots of um, uh, complications with um, ITB friction iliotibial band friction um, a lot of um, just overuse calf strains and um, you know plantar fascial sprains where people have just been hammering mile after mile and typically they come about from um, from just not mixing it up enough just doing too much long slow runs 
uh, not really given and putting enough leg speed in and um, and you start seeing the muscles begin to fatigue very quickly and they're not really dealing with that, that sort of fatigue so uh, a lot of the time it's it's associated with um, well I, I think most injuries at the moment are related to a training error as much as anything and then biomechanical issues sort of come secondary so in terms of the training error it's the, it's the overuse uh, you know not putting enough um, short fast intensity sessions in um, and well, I don't see so many acute injuries from ankle sprains and things like that because um, uh, we tend to deal with things in the more chronic state. But okay. um, certainly, we're getting the um, we're getting the, the shin shin pain um, and also the odd stress fracture, which isn't too nice to deal with because that's kind of like a uh, that affects the race. Um, and how about in terms of does shoe selection does that attribute to many injuries or not? Yeah. Um, I, it's interesting. I, I think I think footwear um, is a hugely hugely important area, um, and where possible, I'll actually use shoes to treat an injury, uh, and then look at ortho- orthotics and and other things secondary, um, because obviously the shoes are the the interface of the road, and that's the thing that's got to be the best performing, um, you know, from day one. So so I, I and and then and then on the converse, I see a lot of injuries coming about from from bad footwear selection and it's not so much um, someone's made a mistake in selecting the shoes it's just it takes years and years of finding out what actually works for you and you guys know that shoe and fight perfect the next day so we see a lot of problems with guys who are, are running in shoes that you know they're not they're not terrible but they're just not dealing with the um, with the pressures of those longer runs and um, they're beginning to fall apart on them and you know cause some some injuries from that but a lot of the shoe shops up here, um, oh, and I know down, down your way, have a, uh, a really good guarantee on their shoes because um, if the shoe isn't right, the person's paid this much money to get to get a shoe for them. And if it hasn't worked properly, then the um, shops actually guarantee that and they will um, credit or um, credit or, or re- replace the shoe when you know, if it, if it has proven to have caused some sort of injury. So it's actually a really, really good system that they have there. When it comes to shoe selection, what are some of the things that, you know, because you're saying over time you kind of figure out your brand and what best model it is for you, yep. but are there any tips that you have that, you know, people can think of when they're selecting shoes if they don't know that? Yeah, I, th- I think for us, um, as endurance athletes, we need to look for something that's that's durable. So, um, you know, if, if, you're a, if you're an 80 or 90 kilo runner, you're not going to work – a 300 gram running shoe particularly well it'll be okay for the shorter faster runs but certainly not for banging out the um the long slow miles so um the first thing is is going to be looking at durability um shoe has to last and and a lot of injuries come about from shoes that are just beginning to wear out and and just begin to show signs of of um you know not um, allowing the foot to function naturally yeah. or, or as it should so um, so first and foremost would be the durability secondary would be obviously the um, the the biomechanical structure of the shoe and how it relates to the person's foot so you know if you're a, a neutral or a, um, a, a supinator then um, obviously you need to find a shoe that reflects that those qualities um, and and a lot of our injuries come about from uh, people who are wearing a, a you know an over controlled shoe and that's um, oh, that's, and it, yeah, that's something that I've seen a lot more of recently. And I don't know if it's because um, people are listening to their mates in the training groups and stuff like that, or and they end up buying the wrong shoe. But I see a lot, lot of situations where the shoes are too strong for the for the runner. So um, 
things are changing a little bit. We didn't really, I didn't really see that so much in the sort of five or six years ago. And um, if, in terms of, uh, figure, you talked about shoe wear there and people sort of having issues when their shoes are almost worn out. Are there any little basic tests you can do to figure out whether your shoes are worn out? Because often shoes, if you if you keep look, look after them, they might look nice and shiny, but they might actually be wearing through. Is there anything you can sort of look for so you know when that, when when it's time to get a new pair? It's interesting. Um, shoe, I know I know shoe companies go out to try and design the, the strongest, most last, um, longest lasting outsole possible. A lot of them do, um, which you know the old test of seeing if your outsole is worn out uh, actually doesn't uh, isn't that accurate these days because the outsoles do last so long that they out that they do outlast the midsole of the shoe. So um, obviously that's a good sign if you start seeing the um, the harder rubber on the outside of your shoe begin to wear through to the to the midsole. That's definitely gone, but it's it does it's not particularly indicative if it's not wearing out to that point that the shoe actually isn't already gone past its use by date so so then we look at another aspect where you put it onto a flat surface like put the shoes onto the table look at them from behind so you're looking directly at the heel counter and just um imagining a, a, a line that runs down through the middle of the heel counter and seeing if it tilts inward or outward or if it still stays relatively straight and uh if it remains fairly straight then obviously the heel <coughs> counter of the shoe is okay um if it's begun to roll inward or outward then then that will actually force the foot into that position because it's beginning to, to take the shape that the foot's pushing it into. Um, so then we move forward from the heel counter to the um, to the to the midsole of the shoe. And if you feel a, a lot of shoes have a um, have a sort of a plastic support that runs through the middle of the arch. Yeah. Um, and if that starts to get quite flexible and soft, then again that's that's begun to to show signs of wear. Uh, they're not supposed to be super stiff, but there is supposed to be a little bit of spring back to them. So if you bend them, and it feels like it's not really lively and doesn't spring back so quickly, then that's that's pretty pretty poked. And also, um, again, while the shoe is on its flat on a flat surface, just looking at it from side on, and you'll sort of see that it begins to take a rocker bottom effect, where the heel. Oh, it is not. Um, maybe just repeat that. that. Maybe just repeat that yeah. sentence you just said. The rock bottom effect. Yeah. Like, yeah, the uh, the rock bottom effect. Where it, um, if if you look at the shoe from side on, yeah, you can actually. Uh, it, it sort of takes the appearance of a boat where the the midsole looks a lot lower in relation to the heel on the forefoot. Okay. Um, and you can imagine put your foot into that shoe that it would it would also force your foot down to that position. Okay. Uh, and then. And then obviously looking at the wear on the upper, once you start getting holes through the through the upper of the shoe, then that's a sign that things are beginning to go. Yep. And um, the last test is normally people will begin to notice a few niggly injuries. You normally, you've normally got one part of your body that's always slightly prone to injury, and if those things start popping up again, then it's important to look at the shoe. Yep. And then I always think that if the shoe feels like it's not lively or if it feels a bit dead, then it's 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 definitely a sign that it's that it's probably on its way out because the shoe you have to be confident with, with that the shoe is doing the right job for you and if you're not confident it probably isn't yep. doing the right thing there seems to be a bit of a movement with Nike at least with their freeze um, you know where the shoe does less support work for you uh, what, what are your fair thoughts on the Nike freeze I, I think they're a um, I think they're a, a, a well I think the, the design and the and the, um, the direction of their Research is is vital. I think it's very very important. I'm I'm beginning to see because uh, it was interesting when I started when I started my own practice. The Nike Free was just coming out. Yeah. And so uh, I've sort of followed it through quite closely because when I first saw it, I really liked the idea of the um, the natural motion. And then uh, I've I've used 
both myself and and um, my girlfriend Kelly, we've we've both worn Nike Freeze for a long, long time, and we've noticed the benefit of them. But, but um, I've also learned a few errors that you can have with them. Where if you overuse them, um, it can actually probably be counterproductive to um, to to your own biomechanics because because there are qualities of that shoe which they're not supposed to have any support at all. So it does do a lot of work. It does require a lot of work from your um, from your leg muscles. There's no cushioning to them. So again, there's the shock impact yeah. is, is a lot higher. Um, and so they're not really they're not really um, recommended for anything over 30 to 45 minute runs. I don't think. And I yeah. think they're really designed for um, running on soft surface, so grass trails things like that. Basically anywhere yeah. that you would normally run barefoot, but you just wanted to have something um, to protect your feet. So okay. I wouldn't run on the road in them, yeah. um, but I think they're great for tracks. You know, for short, short track work, uh, build, um, warm ups and some drill sessions. But then once you come down to the nitty gritty of running, I think it's important to put your running shoes back on. Mm-hmm. The um, the great thing about them though is, it, is they actually do work. They 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 do work to strengthen up the foot a lot. And I've seen a lot of people have have used them as sort of a conjunctive therapy to some of the other things that we're doing, and um, they've they've reported to be working very well. Um, so Nike are the first ones who have sort of got on for that and, and they've done a pretty good job of it. But there are other companies who are bringing out similar designs and shoes which which we'll start seeing a few more of in the market. What about the Newtons? The what's, your, what's your thoughts on the Newtons? Um, Newtons are interesting. I, I think with a Newton, if if you're designed to run in it, great. If you're not, then then it's a bad thing. Um, I, I like the idea of the, the four-foot technology. Um, it's it's an interesting shoe. Um because it, um, it it obviously has these four foot posts um, underneath the metatarsal heads, which which are just completely out out of this world and completely different <laughs> to anything that we've seen before. So, so you you, you, you get a, a super hyped reaction from a lot of the public, and then you also get the um, the people who uh, are a little bit dubious and um, and not so sure if it's actually the best thing out there for you. So so I've looked at quite a few people running in them, and I found that that there are people wearing them who probably shouldn't be. Yep. Um, naturally, basically because they're a heavy rear foot runner, and um, I think that's going to cause a lot of problems. The the durability of the shoe isn't quite where I would like to have seen it, especially for that price. I think it, we bought a pair at Kona last year for 175 US, and I think Kelly finished wearing them at um, Tauranga Half Ironman, so that's only like three months of, yep. of running. So um, they don't last long. They're, they were great. They're, they're good as a, a as a race shoe, and good if you were going to be running fast. Um, for a certain session, but as soon as you were going to be running sloppy and yeah. and you know back on your heels and a bit tired, then I don't think they're very good for you. Um, I was surprised to see the number of people who bought them at Kona last year and raced in them on race day. <laughs> oh, really? If they, got, if they got to the world champs, <laughs> if you think they got to the world champs, then they, they might have thought a bit better about their shoes. But <laughs> the guys who were wearing them that I saw weren't at the front of the field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just wondering whether you, I don't know whether you have uh, a lot of experience with bike shoes and stuff as well, but we often get you know, emails and questions asking about that they get sore feet when they're biking. You know, a fairly common thing just to tell them is to loosen their straps off, but there, there are also yep. often other issues. What, what, um, what should athletes be considering when, if they are getting sore feet when they're riding? Well, the, the, strap, the, the strap issue is, is, is really important because it's um, basically any lateral pressure from a shoe, so pushing against your, your first metatarsal and your fifth metatarsal will, scree- will, will squeeze and irritate the nerves within the middle of the foot. Yep. So um, if the shoe's too narrow, it's going to cause problems. If the, if the strap's too tight, it's going to cause problems. And 
and what frustrates me with a lot of the time with, with my profession is um, we immediately jump down the back of orthotics and say, well, if you're getting numb feet, you need orthotics. And so they go and put orthotics in cycle shoes. But what that actually does is it takes up even more room. Yeah. And yeah. it takes up – and it just it just – it just goes nowhere, and, and it's 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 so glaringly obvious that I just don't see why people don't do the basics first. Try and find the widest shoe possible. And I'm wearing, and I've got that problem. I've got I get numb feet when I'm cycling, and I've started wearing the Northwave Tribals, which um, I haven't found anything that wide before, and it's solved all my problems. So it's a very very simple measure, um, a lot cheaper than a pair of orthotics, uh, and very very easy thing to do. So so I'd certainly get as if anyone walks in with with numb feet when cycling first thing I'll do is look at the width of the shoe if that seems okay uh, we move on to um, looking at this, the biomechanical profile so if they look like they've got a very very flat foot or a very very high arch foot we'll, we'll um, treat that accordingly so the higher arch maybe put a slightly softer sole in the shoe or a flatter foot maybe look at supporting the arch a little bit at that stage but again being careful not to um, to thicken the, 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 the volume of the shoe up at all um, and increasing the, the width of the foot. Uh, and then the other one is looking at the outsole material. I, th- I think um, carbon fibre is great because it's stiff and it's light, but it's also bad because it does provide quite a lot of shock to the foot. And if there are actually good shoes out there now with like a carbon, part carbon, part plastic sole, which seem to take away a lot of that, that um, the vibration and the impact on the foot. Okay. Um, so they were working pretty well. And you look at the... The road surfaces that we ride in New Zealand, and they are really, really bumpy and crappy, crappy um, chip. Yeah. And, 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 and other parts of your body go go numb and sore from from the vibrations. So it's not surprising yeah. your feet do as well. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what, what about um, Rob? What about blisters? Are there any tips that you can kind of give us that maybe athletes can use to avoid getting them? Yes. Um. Um. My. My opinion is based basically on taking what I learned at college and changing it because I didn't think it was quite right. Because, um, <laughs> Should be writing books. <laughs> yeah, because because one thing we're always taught to do is keep the blister intact, which is all well and good if you're um, if you don't do anything like like running or cycling or what have you. So so because if you keep the blister intact and you're running along, eventually it's going to pop. Yeah, and. You, if you're out in the middle of nowhere, if you're running through you know muddy tracks or something, you're going to get mud into that into that blister, and then you're going to risk getting an infection. So, so if any, if if you have a blister, I've always told people to uh, ensure they use a sterile needle, but to actually pierce the blister, get as much fluid out as possible, dress it with an antiseptic dressing, um, you know, iodine-based um, dress um, antiseptic like um, betadine, cover it well um, with with gauze and then sports tape over the top to make sure the gauze doesn't come away. And um, and then just carry on because it's it's if if the blister's not full of fluid, it's not going to cause a problem. Okay. It's only when it's only when it's got fluid in it is that it's going to be an issue. Yeah. And so that's for the treatment of them. And, and um, and and I certainly suggest that if anyone gets a blister while they're training, then just to do that, and make sure it's always dressed. But in terms of prevention, um, it can be a lot of things. Um, usually they come about from either friction or pressure from the shoe. Yep. So if it's a friction issue, then look towards um, um, using Vaseline's or um, using methylated spirits on the area that gets that that's prone to blistering, when, not when the blister's open, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and also, <laughs> yeah, or using appropriate dressings like um, 
um, adhesive gauze or um, just your standard sports skin coloured sports tape. Yeah. Works really well as a um, as a as a um, preventative for blisters. But a lot of those tapes will only work if you actually tape it to itself. So you, you, if you get it on your arch, for example, you need to run the tape right around your foot so it reattaches back onto itself. Okay. To um, so it doesn't come away halfway through your run. Okay. And then socks are the other issue. Because obviously the, the blisters coming up from um, excessive uh, moisture in the shoe or sweating. Um, and and so if you've got a sock that doesn't breathe appropriately or and, and combined with a shoe that doesn't breathe very well, then you're going to get a lot more moisture in the foot as well. And um, and I'm I'm pretty – I'll, I'll put it out there. I'm not a fan of Thorlos yeah, um, just because they are so thick and um, – and I think they actually increase the the moisture within the sock. Um, whereas you look at some of the other brands like the Ultimax um, socks and Riot socks do some very good ones. They're super super thin and um, and and they they seem to be performing really well. Um, it just sort of surprises me that Thorlo have had the same design socks for probably 20, 20 years, when we now know so much more about the body and biomechanics that they haven't actually changed their designs um, to to reflect that. So I had a guy uh, in yesterday who. Um well, they, they now sell merino wool socks. Have you had much experience yep. with them? I haven't. I'd like to try a pair. If anyone's got a oh. pair that can send me. I'll put them onto you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could be I, I'd like to have a look at them because, yeah, I, I know the, the qualities of merino is, 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 is really, it's, you know, it's well well reported. Um, and provided they, they don't overheat the foot, I think that'll be a good thing. Yeah. yeah. So is that the main thing we're looking for with socks? Because nowadays they try to sell you socks that are supporting your feet as well, but is it just a have? Um. Yeah. I, I, I think. I think <laughs> the only the only area that you might get a little bit of um, support from a sock because the, your the skin on the bottom of your foot is very very sensitive to any any pressure or anything touching it. Yep. And so what a sock does is it, is it provides a total contact to the sock to the arch of the foot. Yep. And so if they are slightly stiffer through the arch of the foot, then you might be getting a bit of uh, proprioceptive feedback. Um, from that, and that might be causing you to self-support yourself a little bit more. But I don't think you'd find any any actually any structural yep. um, any socks giving you any structural advantage okay. by just being you know supported in certain areas. People go and walk on hot because the foot's pretty good at strengthening yeah. their feet. That's, that's what we do. Isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. Is we just did a session before warm up for the show. Get ourselves fired. Really? Up yeah. Walk on hot that's that's how we roll. That's that <laughs> awesome. So, to, um, obviously, a bit of a plug for you. Tell us a little bit about your shop, where it is, um, what you're all about. Yep. Well, um, yeah, I've uh, I um, um, founder of um, sports foot foot tra- hang on foot traffic sports podiatry. Better, yep. get, better say that right. Um, yeah, and we're um, our offices are based in um, Glendowie in Auckland. But I have a clinic which I go to once a month in Taupo, and also a clinic which I go to once a fortnight in Arirua. Okay, and um, and we also have a clinic in Green Lane, which I go to um, reasonably frequently throughout the week. So we um, we specialise in the um, management of um, of athletes and specifically triathletes, just because it's 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 my area of interest. Um, but I work with the Academy of Sport, um, New Zealand Academy of Sport, and the um, Triathlon New Zealand High Performance Elite um, athletes as well. Mm-hmm. And um, through the Academy of Sport, I've uh, worked with um, you know various athletes and. In the Olympics and things like that, just just different sports, not not just running and cycling, which has been really interesting. And um, and also with the Auckland Blues um, 
Super 14 rugby team, which is um, which unfortunately they didn't win this this time around. Who won this year? Oh, it was Canterbury, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. um, oh gee. What a yeah, I mean, it's getting a bit boring, isn't it? <laughs> How about that Auckland rugby team? But, um, but, I hope you're not, you're not supplying the Auckland NPC team, are you? No, well, I, I wasn't resigned. I wasn't signed up for another contract with that and that's probably why they didn't that's, do so that's well. That's where it's all gone to custard. <laughs> um, so, yeah. you, so you basically, you're a shoe shop but you've got your podiatry on the on the No, we're not a shoe shop. Podiatry shop. We're not a shoe shop. Not a shoe okay. shop. No, we're just, just, yeah, I'd like it if we were a shoe shop because we do send a lot of people to yeah. various <laughs> shoe shops by the and I'd like if we could keep the business ourselves but And um, what, uh, no, you got a, uh, there are where people can find you? Yes, www.foottraffic.co.nz Great, good. Um, and um, yeah. they can email me if they have any questions. Cool. What we'll do, Rob, um, if anybody has any questions, specific questions on podiatry, if we can uh, email them into us, and once we've built up, you know, yes. a good five or six questions, we'll get Rob back on the show, and yep. um, he can hopefully address those. So, thanks for your time, Rob. Hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Kona. And um, oh no, I hope you had a good time. No, in, uh, no. I hope you had a good time. Yeah. In Kona. It was good to see you your partner won her age group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm psyched about that one. <laughs> And how she actually yeah, she took that whole thing out. Yeah, that's right, Chrissy. Who's that? And Cameron Brown won the mid race. Yeah, yeah I'm stoked about that. <laughs> Finally, but, um, if you um, if you want to um, tap into me later on in the week, and I can give you any more up for the updates or great, uh, or good. see if there, if there are any uh, any dramas going on. Excellent. Cool. Hey, thanks for your time, mate. Thanks for your time, Rob. Awesome. So thanks guys for those interviews, great interviews. Uh, sponsors time. So first of all, I'm going to talk about Coffees of Hawaii today. And I was out riding my bike yesterday because. Secretly, I am actually doing a little bit of training because I don't want the boys at Epic Camp to be caning me too much. But I was out riding my bike yesterday and I was thinking about the presents. And my dad loves coffee. Uh, I was telling you guys earlier on in the year how when we went to Bali, my dad was having three coffees before 7 o'clock in the morning. So I am actually going on Coffees of Hawaii and I'm going to buy my dad a coffee tin uh, gift pack, which you get like three different styles of coffee. You can choose the different packs you have. Uh, for example, the one I'm looking at right now has Mole Skinner, um, Malunalei Estate, and Hawaiian Espresso Molokai style. And uh, you can also get a message actually written on your tin. So uh, sounds pretty good if you ask me. The price is about 36 US, and I'm you know I think it's a really great idea for Christmas presents. And if you want to get onto that now, I'm thinking with shipping. Uh, you probably want to do that kind of now for Christmas presents. And you know what it's like buying for guys. It's absolutely impossible. And, you know, most people love coffee, and so this is a really great way around that. Uh, remember when you go out to the checkout code, I am talk, gives you 20% off your order. So as John would say, it's a no-brainer. Athlinks.com, well, I'm just on the Athlinks homepage right now, and I'm just checking out what they're doing. Um, obviously, they may have got to 50000 by the time the show is up. But if not, obviously 50,000 is a big number that they would love to get. So if you're not already on there, and we know a few of you mustn't be because we know our numbers and we, well, just basically get your butt on there. Sign up. It's a really great way to keep in track of what you're doing with your own racing. Uh, they'll keep on innovating. They've got some more news coming up really recently. Uh, they've added the latest mapping feature, and it's just a really good tool for you as an athlete to kind of keep a history of what you're doing. Uh, for example, Alvin Connor sent through his race report uh, from Kona the other day, and uh, just really good facility for putting out a race report. You can just send a link to your friends, and uh, really great stuff. So, athlinks.com for your social networking. And uh, oh, so for example, now I'm looking at the front page here. This is what I like they're doing. They've got on their front page, they've got stories from on the internet, 
and I got an interview with Luke Van Laird in 1997 after he won the Kona. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just a great resource. So, check, check, check it out. They've also got Mark Allen's Strength Reading. Oh, now I've gone through to the interview. Oh, interesting. Wow, I'm loving it. I'm going to, after the show, I'm going to read this. <laughs> and lastly, we have trybuyers.com. And I went on trybuyers, I just checked out their specials page, and it seems to be a good time to be buying a wetsuit on trybuyers. For example, they have the Orca Sona, which is normally 330 bucks down to around 260 so it's a $60 savings. Uh, they've got lots of big deals coming up. Remember, well, the Quad, Quadtana... Well, it's like 70 bucks off. So if you want to buy a wetsuit, now is the time to get on to trybuys.com and do that. If you want free international shipping, grab a mate, get them to get a wetsuit as well, and you can get $500 shipping for free. If you're in the US, it's only $200. Um, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to the interview of Crowey, uh, you know, it's a really good listen. I had to listen to it this, this morning, and it was uh, really good. It's interesting, as John was saying last week's show, it's actually interesting listening to him before the race. So... Um, he's obviously pretty happy after the race. So that's trybuyers.com. Get on there right now. Our sponsors are Coffees of Hawaii. Get a present. Trybuyers.com. Get a wetsuit. And athlinks.com. Get a profile. So that's pretty much this week's show. Just a few things you need to know. If you have any questions, you can email them through to uh, imantalk at gmail.com. Now, we're not going to change that, so we're just going to keep that how that is. Um, our website now is imtalk.me. And we're actually thinking of adding some new innovations to websites maybe over the next month, so it's kind of a big project for me. But I kind of think I can do a bit more with the website that can make it more community-friendly. And what else? Oh, the donation. So John and I are trying to get to Kona next year. If you want to donate to the show, if you put a $20 donation into the show, then um, we'll go into a draw of winning a prize pack, and we're going to try and make that a pretty mean prize pack, and that would be pretty great. Um, at the same time, you also get your Iron Man talk or IM talk uh, name. I haven't got any of those this week because I'm just kind of doing this one on the wing. But next week's show, we'll get some more out to you guys who have donated. And for those of you who have donated, we really appreciate the support because we want to bring you some great shows from Kona and we'll get there with you guys helping us out. Um, what am I up to for the rest of the week? Well, I'm leaving to Australia in two hours from now. I've got to get this podcast finished up and uploaded. I'm doing my Forever Fitness podcast and getting those uploaded as well. And uh, a lot is happening. So uh, I've got to get the show wrapped up. Other than that, I'm really looking forward to going to theme parks. My daughter has promised me that she will do all the jumps and rides and everything. And uh, last time when we went, she wouldn't do the giant drop, which is one of those ones that just drops straight down. So I'll be interested to see if she's kind of toughened up on that. It's going to be a good time. So I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, so anyway, that's uh, this week's show. We'll be back to the normal format next week. And it is I'm in Russ, I'm in no, Iron Russ, I'm in don't train hard, trade smart, kia kaha. Just about got the air out, so there you go.